The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we today? Most of us are doing great. Some of us are doing okay. Some of us are still waking up. That's okay. I'm glad you're here today. Whether you're in person or you're tuning in online, I'm glad you're here joining us here at the Grove. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at the Grove Church. I get the opportunity of jumping in uh, to our How to Study the Bible series. Pastor Nick is gone. He is sick at home with a pretty bad head cold. Uh, So I do want to take a moment and pray uh, for him, our lead pastor. But maybe you're aware of this. Maybe you're not here in Marysville. There was kind of a a situation incident last night. I know there's been a lot of kind of angst coming in for some of our community members and some of our church family. So I want to take a moment and pray for that as well today before we jump into God's word, because I believe prayer is powerful. So let's take a moment and pray today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. And I thank you for your presence. Lord, I ask that you would uh, continue to work and, and bring peace to many of our hearts in this room as we're having navigated or, or been aware of the situations that's happened here locally within our own town and city, Marysville. I pray your blessing. I pray your peace over your people. Uh, and God, I, I thank you that it reminds us of our community needs you, Jesus. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. And so, Lord, I pray you would show up powerfully and radically in ways and transform lives. Lord, I pray community members and neighborhoods would locally and even throughout Marysville would come to find you in the hope of Jesus. That the situations or the attitudes or the actions they're taking, God, that they would begin to, to re, they would come to the realization that these are worthless endeavors. And so I pray that you would bring transformation. I pray you would bring hope and peace. I thank you that you call us as the Grove Church. To, to carry the weight and to go into the community to sh- share the love of Jesus. So Lord, would you show up today? I pray your peace over your people. Uh, and God, we do pray for Pastor Nick while he's at home. I pray your touch over his body, Lord. I pray this head cold would weaken and diminish in the name of Jesus. You are the healer. You are the God who gives us peace. So would you show up and be who you say you are to us, your people today? In Jesus' name, we thank you. And Amen. I was going to continue praying for the message, and then I kind of stumbled over my words. So you're welcome for that. Um, <laughs> But I'm excited. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 5. So if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. As you turn there, I just have a couple questions for us to get us started. Have you ever observed a professional doing something that is just out of this world incredible? But then when you kind of evaluate their own home life or the way that they live their lives doesn't always necessarily line up with their profession? Let me give you a couple examples. Let's go, and I'm trying to pick universal things. We've tried to be very not pointing fingers at anybody, so please don't be offended. Uh, But maybe a landscaper who knows how to manicure lawns beautifully, multiple tiers of retaining walls, a beautiful water feature. But then you go to their house and you see it's mossy, it's patchy, a lot like my yard right now. There's not a lot of thought or wherewithal. There's not a lot of care given to that their own personal lawn. Maybe you've ever seen this or noticed this. Another example is, and I'm looking up so I don't look at anybody, is maybe a dietitian, right? Maybe they know all the effects and the impacts of eating properly, fueling your body with the right things to produce the healthiest lifestyle, but yet they live their life on junk food or they live their life on sweets and treats like my own lifestyle is. I love sweets. But have you ever observed those things? And then let's get a little personal, right? Some of us are like, shots fired. Why are you taking low blows like that? I'll turn the arrow inward. Have you ever noticed a pastor or known a pastor who can get up on a platform and speak an incredible message, leading people to the, to the hope and the truth of the gospel, only to when you go home, you find that their lives are living differently? Have you ever observed situations or circumstances like this? And let's be honest, we, can go, we don't have to go very far or look very hard to realize the dynamic at play where we say one thing, 
and we're doing another. And I think the challenge and the tension for our message today as we talk about the, one of the greatest pitfalls that you and I can face plays out in this way, where we see this idea of hypocrisy. We did a series years ago called I'm a Big Hypocrite, which is to bring revelation to the simple truth that many of us feel. We can relate to hypocrisy in one way, shape, or form, right? If we were to evaluate our lives, and we're our own worst critics, so we evaluate our lives, we realize what I say doesn't always line up with what I do. And the challenge, I think, for us today when it comes to navigating this pitfall can, can be on display even more so, arguably throughout history. I think one of the most prominent pictures of this contrast can draw all the way back to Jesus' day and the religious leadership. Think about it for a second. The religious leaders are individuals who devoted their lives to understanding Scripture. They memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. They would know the prophecies that would point to a coming Messiah at some later date in time. The religious leaders, they would be able to, you could quote a line from a psalm, and they would know exactly what psalm that you were referring to in the context and the authorship surrounding it. They were versed. They lived their lives devoted to Scripture. Then why is it that they were also the audience that had the hardest time believing in Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Or have you been like me where I read these thoughts or I see these things and at a distance I just shake my head and say, dude, how could you miss that, dummy? Like how, how could you, you knew what the messianic prophecies, prophecies were and you still missed it? Man, I would never do that. No one's ever said that, only me, right? Like, but the reality is like, think about it. If they were devout studiers of the word and they missed it, why? How? That, that scares me a bit because I've not devoted my entire life like they have. I don't have the first five books of the Bible memorized. I can tell you Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And somewhere along the lines he said that it was good. Right? I can quote some verses, but I, I can't. I don't have things memorized like the religious leadership of Jesus' day. So let's ask the question, why? Ironically, as you study the Bible, you can find out reasons why. And there's, a, there's, there's more than four, but I want to share four that are fairly relevant for us in our, our topic today in a series. And the first one is that we find in Scripture that they love the praise of men. Why did they miss it? Because they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. In John chapter 12, verse 43, we see this passage that says simply this, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. In John, 44, John 5, verse 44, it says Jesus speaking directly to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, says, You accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The religious leaders were more concerned with what their peers were saying about them than what God's truth said to them. They were more concerned about being accepted by their friends and by the community of people than they were about belonging to God's family and living according to the truth. Devout studies of scripture cared more about people and what they said than about what God said. Why would they miss it? It starts there. Another reason why they missed it is they love their positions of authority instead of living and serving with hearts of humility. 
See, in, in Matthew chapter seven, or 23, verses 1 through 7, we see this. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. This is a big deal. Moses' seat is a very highly esteemed place of authority because Moses would lead and direct God's people back in, in late Genesis, Exodus. He led them out of Exodus. It was, I guess actually Exodus, sorry. He led, Moses led God's people, judged and provided direction on how to live, what to do, how to engage certain circumstances. So Moses would sit and be the judge for God's people. So Jesus is affirming their position and their authority. He says they sit in Moses' seat, so be careful to do everything they tell you. Jesus affirms their authority. Jesus affirms their knowledge. Jesus continues and says this, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Every time I read these words, my heart immediately says, God, help me to not do that. I want to be able to practice what I preach. I want to be able to speak what God's word says, but not, let, but not walk away like it didn't change my life. He continues on and says that they tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on each other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. It says everything they do is done for people to see. They make the phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. He's referring to the robes that they wore. They were demonstrative. They were bold and, and they would show the authority by which they carried. So they would walk and make a big show. They wanted to show everybody how cool and how awesome and how the authority they had as rabbis. It says they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. These are hard issues. They loved the position of authority that they had as rabbis. They loved the attention, the affirmation that they got, not just from each other, but their, the, the community around them. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They loved the position of authority and the perks that came with the job, so to speak. Another one, that they were jealous of Jesus' popularity, which this one makes me chuckle a bit to think about it. But then I'm like, oh, wait, I don't, I don't like being unpopular. I want to be popular too. But it says this in Mark 15. It was out of self-interest, another translation, envy, jealousy, or spite, that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. The religious leaders were losing influence. They were losing revenue. They were losing popularity. They were not well looked upon in comparison to Jesus. Jesus was teaching them a way of fulfilled by the law, not held accountable to. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to go and live frivolously, right? But Jesus, it becomes our standard. Not these rules and regulations that the religious leaders are placing and putting on people with the intent to help them live righteously, but they missed it. They cared about popularity. They were annoyed that Jesus was becoming more famous than them. Let's kill him and get rid of him. He's taken away my followers. Last one that I would say today, they saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. Jesus directly exposed their lack of diligence because of their comfort. He brought to light their error of their ways. We see in Matthew 23 again, but specifically the end of the chapter 13 to 36, where Jesus is point blank calling out and condemning the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he's saying words like, woe to you, which is not a compliment, not a, hey buddy, you're gonna figure it out. Come on, you can do it. 
It's a point blank directive and a point blank line drawn in the sand that says you are more condemned because of this lifestyle. In essence, what you're preaching, you're not practicing. And it, it comes to this moment where Jesus says, listen, you are more concerned with cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside is dirty and filthy and unusable. More concerned with your appearance outwardly than you care about the heart inwardly. If we were to identify why the Pharisees, the religious leadership of the day, missed the hope and the promise of the Messiah, it's because they loved God, the praise of men. They cared about their authority. They didn't like Jesus being more popular than them. And they didn't like the fact that he was calling them out. He was changing the way they lived. He was, he was addressing their comfort, to say it that way. And if we jump into John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40, two verses that I think are important to, to continue to build this case and help us understand what Jesus is getting at, there's this moment in John chapter 5 where Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But contextually what's going on here is Jesus shows up on the scene. He's, he's in a place where there's a bunch of sick people who are not, they can't see, they're blind, so they're blind. They can't walk. They've been disabled. They're navigating disease and sickness. They're waiting and anticipating for an opportunity to be healed. It says Jesus was among them, and he sees a man. For 38 years, he's been lame. means he's been bedridden. He's been laying on a mat for 38 years, unable to walk. Jesus sees him, and in Aaron's paraphrase, this is not directly quoted from the Bible. It's my paraphrase of the story. Right? He shows up and says, hey, you want to walk? Pick up your mat and go. Go on, bud. Get up. Go on. You can do it. Just grab your mat. Get out of here. Go on. It says the man picked up his mat and walked. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, saw the man and walked over and said, excuse me, sir, you're carrying a mat. Today's a Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do any work. And one of the greatest moments in this man's life, miracle, his legs are all of a sudden working. He can walk. He can leap. He can jump. He can probably play basketball before it was ever created. He had this incredible moment. But he's carrying this mat. And the religious leaders are more concerned with him carrying a mat than the fact that he was, no, he was lame, but now he can walk. And this lame man who is now walking, carrying his mat, was like, hey, who told you you could do that? And at this point, Jesus had vanished into the crowd a bit, so he, did, he, he couldn't point out the guy. He's like, uh, I don't know, but I was just told to pick up my mat and go. So I did. Clicks his heels together. Deuces. Continues on as the story kind of unfolds. Jesus shows up again, circles back to the man and says, hey, you're well. Awesome. Now go and sin no more or worse things will happen. And Jesus is alluding to eternity. He's alluding to a life filled with hopelessness. So go and sin no more. Live righteously. Take what God has done in bringing healing to your legs and live in glory in response to his goodness. The man hears this, finds out, and runs back to religious leaders, not to out Jesus. I actually think there's a, a response of humility going back to the authority of the religious leaders, saying, hey, I figured out who told me, just so you know, it was Jesus. Okay, we're good. Religious leaders get all up in arms. <sighs> Jesus, all he does is heal on the Sabbath. What a punk. Finds Jesus. It says their intent was then to persecute Christ. And their greater intent, which we know, was to kill Jesus at one point. And in this discourse where these religious leaders are talking to Christ, this is what we have. It's a much bigger discourse, but these two verses are relevant for us today. It says this, you study the scriptures diligently. These are Jesus's words to religious leaders, sorry, because you think that, I, that in them you have eternal life. 
These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The very thing Jesus was calling them out for, you, you know these words. You study the scriptures. They're pointing to me. Yet you have more hope in what they say about eternal life than the fact that it's pointing to a person who gives eternal life. This dynamic at play, this hypocrisy at play, this pride that wells up, has welled up in these religious leaders was the very reason they missed Jesus. I love what the Life Application Study Bible says about these two verses. It says, the religious leaders knew that the, what the Bible said, but failed to apply its word to their lives. They knew the teaching of scriptures, but failed to see the Messiah to whom the scriptures pointed. They knew the rules, but missed the Savior. Entrenched in their own religious system, they refused to let the Son of God change their lives. Don't become so involved in practice. Not become so involved in practicing religion that you miss the purpose of your faith, following Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We recognize that the greatest pitfall in studying scripture for you and I today is doing so with an unchecked heart. When we read the scripture and don't leave or don't let it permeate and penetrate our hearts and souls, where we check it off on our reading plan because, hey, cool, I'm up to date. I'm not a day or two behind. I'm current. But we fail to let God's word, what I would say, and even as Pastor Nick has said in, in weeks and months and years, read us. Are we letting God's word read us? Because if we read God's word, if we study God's word with an unchecked heart, we become like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. See, we gain knowledge, but if knowledge doesn't produce change, pride then creeps in. The reality for you and I today is, are we aware of pride creeping in? Where we allow a little bit of pride, it'll corrupt our entire life. As a pastor, many of us even as pastors here have seen what happens to individuals when they read God's word without being checked by God's word. And the result is, is pretty simple. They become more judgmental. People become more judgmental and less gracious. That'll speak for itself. I'm more critical of how others are, are living their lives and I'm a whole lot less gracious. There's no hope for you. Turn or burn, good luck. I know the way. Sorry. We become more critical, more judgmental, and less gracious. When we, when we study God's word with an unchecked heart, we become smarter, we gain a whole lot of knowledge, but we become colder. I don't have time for you. You know what? There's a hope and there's a savior, but I ain't got time to tell you about him. So maybe one day when I'm not busy studying, we miss the warmth. We become opinionated. I, I, I like the way Pastor Ryan said it this morning to me as we were processing some notes. We become the world's hall monitor. Anybody old enough to remember hall monitors? I am, I promise, I know. I got in trouble with a couple of them that I told my mom on them. It was great. 
didn't do anything, but actually I think I got grounded once. Maybe I didn't, Mom, I know you're watching. Anyways, we become so opinionated, we know what you should do. And we're going to rebuke you and correct you when you don't line up. Hey, you're ditching class. Why weren't you at church last week? How many days have you read the Bible this year? We know what's best for you. When we read and study God's word with an unchecked heart, we become more opinionated and in turn manipulative, expecting people to do what we prefer them to do. We don't want that. As pastors, we've seen this play out all the time. Which means it's the exact pattern that we see in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So the challenge for you and I, if we're going to live with a checked heart, it means that we should evoke greater humility as we study God's word. Because we realize it's not about us. Jesus came on this earth, and even then it wasn't about him. He became the greatest servant of all. He was here to, for, for God's purposes, not his own agenda. He was fully man. He had his own desires, his own pride, his own ego that he was daily fighting and daily surrendering to, Christ, to, to his heavenly father. But even for Jesus, it was not about him. Even in the greatest moment of struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say? God, I don't want to do this. But what did he say after that? Not my will, but yours be done. When we study God's word, we, it should ev evoke, it should, the, the cause and effect should be a greater humility in all of us. It should lead to larger hearts for those who have yet to understand and receive the message of Jesus. This is a hard one. It should lead us to walk with more grace and compassion for those who have yet to hear about the, uh, the hope of Jesus. Can I be honest with you? Am I allowed to do that today? It's a whole lot easier to sit back and condemn. It's a whole lot easier to look and see, man, you're not living up to a biblical standard. You need Jesus. But as I read the Bible, man, it wrecks me to realize, Jesus, you came in John 3.17 so that the world not would be condemned, but they would be saved. Is that my attitude towards people? and wanting to present the gospel to them, and wanting to love them and care for them? Do I want them to see the hope of Jesus, or do I want them to feel condemned because they're not living up to a, a standard? When I study the Bible, it should convict me to have grace towards individuals who have yet to understand this message that I'm daily being challenged to understand. We should be people of warmth, of joy, of peace, of trust, hope, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. That's called the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6. We should be people modeling this behavior and this attitude and these characteristics in increasing measure. Effective Bible study means it evokes, it affects our lives to where we live by the fruit of the Spirit. I'm reading a book right now. It's actually the, the, the brilliance of the timing. I read it this weekend. And when I, when I was working through these notes, there's a book I'm reading called Practicing the Way by John Mark Cummer. He's a former pastor who branched out and, and launched a, pro, a nonprofit called Practicing the Way. It's a discipleship ministry. 
But he wrote a book and he says this in the book, which is really awesome because it stung and hit me every time I read it and even every gathering so far. It says this, if you want to chart your progress on on the spiritual journey, test the quality of your closest relationships, namely by love and the fruit of the spirit. And then here's the application questions. Would the people who know you best say, ready? Are you becoming more loving, joyful, and at peace? More patient and less frustrated? I underlined that one in the book, and I'm like, nope. (laughs) Kinder, gentler, softening with time, and pervaded by goodness. Faithful, especially in hard times, and self-controlled. I'm thankful just as a caveat, he says, those closest to you, would they say, not what would you say? Because I can look in the mirror and say, nope, 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 nope. But then he doesn't stop there, which is really awesome. And he continues and he says this, are you growing in love, not just for your friends and family, but for your enemies? When you are hurt, wounded, and treated unjustly, as we all are at times, and he's not saying everything is the same circumstance, but we all face hurt and wounds, being treated unjustly. He says, are you finding yourself increasingly able to emotionally release the bitterness, to absorb the pain and not give it back in kind, to pray and even bless those who curse you? When you read and study scripture, does your life reflect that? I would suggest to us today that it should. Because a life studying scripture that is with a checked heart should evoke greater humility. It should equate to larger compassion and understanding for those who have yet to understand the message of the gospel. It should cause warmth and love and the characteristics of the fruit of the spirit in increasing measure for each of us. Because our lives should be reflecting in increasing measure daily the hope and love of Jesus. And it makes me stop and pause and step back for a second. And I look at, I look at the whole of what the Grove Church is doing. What are we trying to accomplish within Marysville, Snohomish County in Washington State? And we're building a building. And I know some of us can say, I understand why we're doing that, Aaron, but I, I don't ever want it to fall on deaf ears or to get so old news that it's like, yeah, that's just, we don't have to talk about it anymore. We're not building a building so we have this incredible facility and we say, hey, check it out, the Grove Church, we finally arrived. Let's sit back in our comfy new seats and have a great time together. We're not, we're not trying to create a bigger space so all of us can circle the wagon together and be together as a church family. We're building a new auditorium because we're trying to make room for those who have yet to cross the line of faith who know that there's a God who loves them like crazy. We're building a new building because we care deeply about the lost being found because Jesus says, I'd go after the one and leave the 99. That's why we're doing this. Does it cost money? Yes. Does it cost energy? Yes. Does it cause all of us to lean in together? Yes, by all means, please. Because we care about making room for, for the broken, for the lost. For many of us in this room, when we've been hopeless and hope and needing hope, we found Jesus to be transformative. That's why we're doing it. It causes us as the Grove Church to remember to walk in grace, to be welcoming, loving people, to not be content coming in, sitting down, having my coffee, not saying hi to a single person in the lobby. Challenge accepted. Do it. <laughs> Leave today. Say hi to someone. Get to know someone. Ask for a name. 
Maybe you've met the person a dozen times. Ask it again. Let's walk with humility. We're not about having our own seats. We're imperfect, imperfect Jesus-loving people. There's a reason we don't let you embroider your name on a seat or put a sign in a parking spot because it's not about you. There's a reason why we try to model the code in everything we do. Code, the code like we give up things we love for things we love even more. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. That's who we want to be. We will lead the way with irrational generosity because we believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we live with eyes wide open, our lights of the body, our lives being open and looking for opportunities to be generous with our time, with our talent, with our money. Because it's not about me. It's about the kingdom. The reason we're building a building is to make room so that everyone can understand the hope of the gospel. Well, we have to be very careful. Because in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul makes a very simple statement that you and I, if we're living and studying the Bible with unchecked hearts, will fall victim to. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We are called to be people centered in the gospel, checked by the word of God as we study it, so we can live in love, building up his church and people. I love the way the Amplified says it. it says knowledge alone makes people, makes people self-righteously arrogant. But love, the unselfishly, that unselfishly seeks the best for others, builds up and encourages others to grow in wisdom. The challenge you and I have to face and grab a hold of today is am I studying God's word with an unchecked heart? Because I want to be a person who loves and builds up not one who gets puffed up by how great and how much I know. As we study the Bible, here's what the Holy Spirit will do, among many other things. He's going to reveal the power of the gospel, essentially the good news, which is your life for his. Our worst for Jesus' is best. The Holy Spirit in, in the study of Scripture is going to reveal to you and I that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus fulfilled it all and invites you to live in the freedom, the hope, the joy of belonging to his family that he no longer counts you as, as judged but redeemed because he took the judgment on himself. As we study the Bible, the Holy Spirit's gonna challenge our transformation that we never have arrived, that we are daily being renewed. You and I are never complete and never perfect. You could be following Jesus for 80 years of your life, or maybe it's the first day you've ever crossed the threshold of a church. I'm so glad you're here, by the way. But we're never incomplete. The transformative power of the gospel is still at work in our lives. And as we study scripture, the Holy Spirit's gonna bring things to mind to help you understand the transforming power of truth. And I love that the Holy Spirit, as we study scripture, is gonna remind us of our daily hope in him. Because I'll be honest with you, can I, you hear messages sometimes, and like I said earlier, I'm my own worst critic. I walk out beating myself up, I gotta be better, I gotta be a better dad, I gotta be a better husband, I, mean, I gotta be better, I, I just gotta be better. And I feel so overwhelmed, and where do I even begin? But as, as I study scripture and the Holy Spirit does his job and it reminds me of the hope that I have in Jesus alone, it's not about me, it's about him. I can walk out with joy saying, God, I'm not a perfect work yet. There's grace, there's joy in the journey. I'm imperfect. 
I'm not growing in being patient and less frustrated. Help me (laughs) because I have hope in Jesus. He's not done. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. As we read scripture with checked hearts, there's hope, there's transformation, there's joy. My question to you today is how's your heart? Are you studying God's word unchecked? Are you being transformed by checking your heart with scripture and the Holy Spirit doing his job and you inviting the Holy Spirit to read you and challenge you? Psalm 139 is a great psalm. And I love at the end of Psalm 139, it says, search me, O God, and test me. See if there's any anxious way in me. If I'm gonna challenge you to have homework moving into this next week, is as you study the Bible this week, it would be start and end with Psalm 139. And make it a prayerful moment where you say, God, Holy Spirit, search me and test me. See if there's any anxious way in me. You're taking your life and putting it in comparison to the standard of scripture. And you're inviting the Holy Spirit to say, here I am, show me what doesn't line up and give me the humility and the the boldness and the audacity to follow and trust in you. Because we're called as followers of Jesus to study his word with a check in our hearts, not unchecked. So we guard against the pride that will creep in. Let me pray for you today. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone, Jesus. And I pray you'd be with us. I pray you would guide us and guide our thoughts, guide our hearts. Help us to yield to you, to be filled with your grace and your hope and your peace. I pray you would guard and protect, but also lead us and give us the courage to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.